0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. In today's episode, History's Hook focuses on the life and legacy of Matthew Fontaine Morey, the Pathfinder of the Seas. Few Americans have achieved more or contributed more to the growth and prosperity of the United States than Maury. A Virginian by birth, but raised in Middle Tennessee, his calling was the sea. His scientific methodologies related to meteorology and oceanography changed how the world's navies and merchant marines operated. And even today, his observations and writings play a central role in how we travel the world's seas. I'm joined in the studio today by by Mr. Russell Hooper. Mr. Hooper is a history enthusiast and collector who has amassed the largest known private collection of Fontaine-Moray family papers, which he calls the Pathfinder Papers. He lives in Spring Hill, Tennessee, where he has served on the boards of the historic Franklin Masonic Hall, the Battle of Franklin Trust, and the Murray County Historical Society. Mr. Hooper was the recipient of a travel research grant from William and Mary, where he was able to study the influence of the Maury family on early American history. Russell Hooper, welcome to History's Hook. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Russell, I think the Maury family has been seriously overlooked in American history generally. I didn't learn about them in any textbooks in any of the schooling that I had. What is the way that the Maury family – give me a single way – in which the Maury family and their accomplishments impact us today?
2: Well, I'll tell you. I'll start with with Commander Maury, Commander Matthew Maury. Even today uh, in the Navy, there is an entire class of ships called the Pathfinder class. And, of course, Maury is known as the Pathfinder of the Seas. So you have an entire – class of ship named for him. They're oceanographic survey vessels. And of course, he's the father of oceanography. So still today, and there is a ship, the USNS Mari, the TAGS-66, which I visited a few years ago, uh, named directly for him in that line. So there's still ships out there today on the seas, uh, 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 surveying the oceans and carrying on his legacy as the father of oceanography. So it's very present today.
1: It's amazing. So let's address an ongoing issue among (laughs) local folks in Tennessee. Matthew Maury, spelled M A U R Y, pronounced his name Maury. Maury, right. Now, the county where we're sitting right now was named after his cousin. Is that correct? Yes, his elder cousin, Abram. Abram Maury. However, the county is known as Murray County. Uh At the grave peril of your life while you remain in Murray county today <laughs> what's the right way to say it? oh goodness uh
2: a few years ago, when I was on the Murray County Historical Society, I was talking with mr. Bob duncan, and uh I was telling him you know that the family that I know they pronounce it mari the higher north you go Maury. um And he told me a funny thing. He said, look here. He said, the family can pronounce that however they like. But in this county, we say Murray. (laughs) And I said, fair enough, sir, because I had such great respect for him.
1: And and the reason why Murray, I think, has always been pronounced Murray County here is our earliest records at the archives. Many of the earliest settlers were spelling phonetically, and often they were spelling it M-U-R-R-Y. They Ah. were spelling. They were spelling it like they were saying it. So Maury in, in Middle Tennessee <laughs> is Murray, and I'm afraid it's going to stay that way. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so Murray County, as you said, was named for Abram Murray. Who is he? Uh, and how did he get an honor of having a Tennessee county named after him? Well, Abram uh, founded uh, – well, he came from Virginia. Uh,
2: the the, the Maury's came from Virginia. Uh, and he founded Franklin, Tennessee in 1799. And he was also very involved in Middle Tennessee as a whole. So when uh, Murray County was established, I think it was just an honor. Uh, to honor him and his 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 legacy in Middle Tennessee.
1: Yeah, I think he was maybe representing this area in state legislature too early on. I think he was. That was a, he was a move on uh, Murray Morey County's part by <laughs> by naming it after a, right. a a mover and shaker in, in politics. They were a right. prominent family in Virginia. Absolutely, Abram's uncle, uh, Commander Murray's grandfather,
2: was Reverend James Murray. and Reverend James Murray ran a small school in uh, outside Charlottesville called the Mari School for Boys. And at that school, he taught uh, none other than Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe. So – and in fact, Jefferson lived with Reverend Murray and his family for about two years after Jefferson's father passed.
1: I mean three of the greatest minds in the foundation of America and they're all being taught by this – Mari, <laughs> This one man. What do we know about his education? Well, he, uh, he went to William and Mary actually. And um, the second oldest college in the country, I think it depends on
2: who you ask oh, okay. they, they could get competitive with Harvard uh, it gets into when the charter was founded and whatnot. But, yes, it is the second and some consider it the oldest uh, institution. Um, but he went to William and Mary and then started the Mari School for Boys and uh, his influence. John Meacham. The historian John Meachin touches on Reverend James Maury in his book um, Jefferson, the Art of Power, if anyone wants to check that out. Uh, but he is largely overlooked.
1: Uh, and he's the nexus of so much thought, uh, political thought in America, early America. Absolutely. And Abram and all the Mari's carried that legacy with
2: them. And in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, I acquired Abram's a personal copy of the Declaration of Independence. And wow. uh, I wanted to add it to my collection just because of the importance
1: of it. Absolutely. And he carried that close to his heart. So that's incredible. So what was the impetus for the Maury family to move? They had prominent lives. They were successful in Virginia. What prompted them to come to the western frontier when Tennessee opens up to settlement? Well, I think the Maury's have always had a sense of exploration
2: about them from Reverend James Murray, who was fascinated by the West. Um, and and that, that led into Abram, who I think was just adventurous and wanted to to spread his wings, so to speak. Um, now, Matthew Murray, his young cousin, um, his father, Richard Murray, uh, left Virginia in 1811 to move to, to Franklin to join Abram. Um, Richard had in the late 1790s, had bought land in Virginia from uh, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee's father. He bought mm-hmm. tobacco land, but it, it didn't work out. And so eventually Abram said, Cousin Richard, why don't you come to Franklin and uh, Middle Tennessee and, and try your hand at Cotton? And
1: that's how Commander Murray arrived here in 1811. He was about five years old. And we're going to spend the majority of our time on, on Commander Morey, Matthew Fontaine Murray. He's Abrams' cousin. Um, Matthew was born in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, uh, when he was about five years old, I think. About 1811, uh, he comes to Franklin, Tennessee with his family. Um, talk about the early life of Matthew Moray. What's, what's, what are the things that drives him as a, as a young man on the Western frontier?
2: Well, uh, like his grandfather, and uh, he had a sense of adventure about him. Now, his father, Richard, uh, they had a somewhat strained relationship. Richard Murray wanted Matthew to learn how to farm and how to run a plantation. Uh, Matthew had very little interest in that from a very young age, and so he really bonded with Abram, his elder cousin Abram. In fact, he called him Uncle Abram as a term of endearment. Um, which has caused some confusion in the past about their their family relationship. But Abram really understood young Matthew. And when he was about 11 or 12, Matthew was climbing a tree and he fell, uh, some accounts of about 30 feet. Hmm. Um, He injured his back badly. And because of that, he could no longer help his father on the farm. Uh, So that sort of pressed his father's hand, and Abram stepped in and said, hey, I've got this this school called the Harpeth Academy in Franklin that I'm on, a board of, on the board of, and why don't you let the boy come to Harpeth Academy where he can learn? And Richard, his father, begrudgingly said okay, and so that's where Matthew, he started going to the Harpeth Academy, and of course uh, uh, James Odie, uh, the future first Episcopal bishop of Tennessee, was the headmaster, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, Young Matthew and Bishop Odey developed a very strong friendship uh, during those early years.
1: What kind of a student was he? He was excellent.
2: Uh, his first teacher at Harpeth Academy was the Reverend Gideon Blackburn, mm-hmm. and uh, Reverend Blackburn uh, said that Matthew Mari got the gist of Latin in about seven days. <laughs> wow. So he was brilliant at language uh,
1: amongst other things. He was a, he was a top student. So he becomes known as the Pathfinder of the Seas. Yes. Uh, so he's living in Tennessee, nowhere near <laughs> the sea. How, where, where does this love of the sea come from? His elder brother, John.
2: John Murray was a, a very famous young man in the U.S. Navy. Um, and John, at one point in his life, found himself marooned on an island called Nuku, Nuku Hiva. And... He found himself there. He had been dropped off with several other sailors uh, to look for sandalwood uh, to trade with China. But the, unfortunately, the War of 1812 broke loose after their ship had departed, and so the ship was unable to uh, return in a timely manner to the island. So uh, there were two warring tribes uh, John Murray somehow found a way to survive. Most of the, the young sailors were killed. Um, John and one other survived. They were eventually rescued. Uh, but it be- became quite a legendary story in US Navy history. And so Matthew was just absolutely like, – like a lot of
1: little brothers, he just looked up to his elder brother. About How, how much older was uh, John? Oh gosh, I, you know I really don't know. Maybe five or ten years older. Okay, significantly older than quite a bit. Yeah. So was this story this this great adventure that Lieutenant Morey is experiencing? Was it published? Uh, were there letters back and forth between the brothers? How did how did young Matthew find out about this? And well, John actually I, I, he visited Franklin
2: one time that I know of, and so he young Matthew heard it in person, person. at least one time, and uh, Matthew. In his life, uh, when he was first starting out in the Navy, he ended up uh, visiting Nuku Hiva when he was serving on the USS Vincennes, which was the first Navy ship to circumnavigate the globe. And Matthew's – one of his shipmates was uh, Thomas Melville, Herman Melville's beloved cousin. And so the story is, is that Matthew and Thomas Melville befriended one of the chiefs. And Matthew Murray learned the language in about a week, enough to communicate with the chief to learn more about his brother's story on the island. And uh, many people suspect that Thomas went back and told his cousin Herman what happened. And Herman's first novel, which came out several years later, was set on Nuku Hiva right. uh, called Taipee. And the narrator was Tamo, named after Thomas. And it was a similar story of what happened to John – uh, Maury, so you know there's all there's this interesting Maury Melville connections throughout history that I, I am looking at.
1: But yes, the story was well known. This the story of Maury has so many connections that we're going to hit on today that goes way beyond Middle Tennessee. It wraps around the globe numerous times, Absolutely. and the connections and people that he gets to to meet and interact with is is really unbelievable. His brother died tragically. Mm-hmm. Uh, of yellow fever. Is yes. that right? Yes. About how old was he? Do you know when he died? Or how old was – do we know how old uh, Matthew was at the time of his brother's death? Oh, gosh. Matthew was probably 17 or 18, and,
2: and John was in his early 20s. Um, but his death devastated Richard Mari, and that was another reason Richard, as Matthew was kept talking about wanting to join the Navy, Richard, um, he'd lost one son. And uh, that was enough for him in his mind. He didn't want Matthew to uh, be harmed in any way, like in that manner.
1: So, Despite the death of his brother and the objections of his father, Matthew was appointed as a midshipman in the Navy by then Tennessee Congressman Sam Houston. So Absolutely. A, another connection. <laughs> uh, we're going to be doing a lot of that historical name dropping in this episode. Matthew's first appointment was aboard the USS Brandywine uh, whose special mission was what? was to take Lafayette uh, back to France
2: and uh, as you mentioned before, Matthew Murray, he's sort of a Forrest Gump-type character in history. Uh, Every midshipman that was selected for the Brandywine, they were selected because their ancestors were involvement in the Revolutionary War. And Matthew's uncles, uh, future consul James Murray, future consul of Liverpool, and his other uncle Fontaine Murray uh, were at uh, – Yorktown, during the siege of Yorktown. In fact, Fontaine Marie was one of Lafayette's uh, aide de camps. Really? Yes. And so in his cons- – and Consul James Murray, his other uncle, was on the Ville de Paris with the Comte de Gras. So uh, Lafayette was well aware of who young Matthew Murray was. And Lafayette's uh, motto was current on uh, why not? Why not try something risky in life? And Years later, when Mari published his first book, uh, mari 's Practical Navigation, on the title page, he put Curran on wow. as uh, an, a tribute to the old French
1: general. Um, Amazing. So uh, Lafayette, if I remember correctly, had done a tour of the United States, visited every state in the Union, including coming to Middle Tennessee. Absolutely. Uh, and spent some time in, in Nashville. There are lots of Columbia, Tennessee connections with that, I know, uh, as well. During during his visit here, James K. Polk, I know, was was part of the group that went and visited him. So – uh, amazing! So, what a what a plum appointment as a young lieutenant in the navy. Right, he got started off on the right the right foot. So, so he's on the Brandywine. Its main mission is to get Lafayette back to France at the the end of his his tour of the United States. What kind of a sailor was young Maury right off the bat? Oh gosh, he it, well, first of all, he was devoted, um, and he 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 kept
2: notes and journals. Um, to an extent that it was noticed by his, his shipmates. They noticed uh, he, he was a different a different breed, um, very thorough, very observant. What kind of notes? What was he recording? Oh, just uh, weather patterns, uh, wind patterns. Um, he was very frustrated by the lack of formal education that was offered by the Navy. Uh, they had teachers on board some of these ships, but Mari, uh was so intelligent, he often felt – he, he, he it was being neglected you know the the army had west point um the navy did not have any institution of that kind and that planted a seed in maury's mind he used to uh on some of his cruises he would practice trigonometry uh with chalk on the shot uh you know the uh, the cannonballs he would write figure out math problems on cannonballs so he would kind of teach himself and and that was noticed by everyone Uh,
1: how thorough and how devoted he was to learning. He's taking a scientific approach to sailing, which is quite different from probably what most young lieutenants are looking for when they they are the Navy. Right, right. It's amazing, and something that's going to serve him and all of us (laughs) incredibly well as this story unfolds. Um, He got to see the world aboard USS Vincennes. Absolutely. Uh, Talk about what the mission of the Vincennes was. Uh, well, the
2: the main part I know about it, honestly, was the, is the Nuku Hiva, uh, uh aspect of it. But it, it was the first, as I understand, first U.S. ship to circumnavigate the entire globe. So Mari really um, – you can imagine coming from Franklin, Tennessee, uh, to see the world in that manner. And he was really fascinated with South America. And um, one of his mentors was Alexander uh, Humboldt, Baron Humboldt. Um, … who, of course, traveled all through South America. Hmm. Um, so Mari was really fascinated by that. In fact, there's some really neat letters he wrote, Bishop Ody uh, about his adventures in, in South America. Um, he learned a lot about political uh, turmoil. Um, he really gained a lot of uh, insight
1: into the world on that cruise and he was on the cruise the entire time he, did he himself circumnavigate the globe with the ship or now that i cannot okay. say for 100% but but the ship itself did he was on it for a good good period of time so so he saw he saw much of the globe doing that and he's he continuing did. to keep these records as he he goes continuing to follow weather patterns and and absolutely okay interesting um while on furlough following his world cruise Maury's seagoing days came to a rather abrupt end following a very non-naval injury. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes, he had, he had visited Franklin uh, to see his parents uh, while on shore leave. And on the way up to New York to, to start work on a coast survey uh, on a rainy night, he was involved with a carriage accident in Ohio. And the inside of the carriage was full, so Mari said, I'll, I'll sit up uh, with the driver. When they slipped off the road, he was thrown from the carriage, and it, it shattered one of his legs. And uh, you know they reset the the bone, uh, the femur bone. They reset it apparently improperly. So two or three weeks later, they had to re-break it. Mm. And so from that that point on, Mari was basically crippled. He had to have a cane for the rest of his life. And he, it did it it abruptly ended his dreams of being a great explorer.
1: fascinating so he's considered unfit for sea duty at this point right but he's yet to achieve the sobriquet of pathfinder of the seas right we're going to learn more about it in just a moment we need to take our first break you're listening to history's hook
0: don't go away history's hook with your host tom price will be right back after this brief commercial break Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram gives thanks to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for the third straight year. Through April, we aim to make this year the best year ever by donating $150 for every vehicle sold. Shop online or at the dealership and you too can help us honor St. Jude's 60th anniversary. Protect what matters most. You can count on us. it really matter where you get your jewelry repaired? Of course it does. When you take your jewelry to a hometown jeweler, you build trust. Hello, I'm Rick Tillis, owner of Tillis Jewelry in downtown Columbia. I started as a goldsmith 30 years ago, and because of my experience and our staff, we ensure all repairs are completed to the highest of expectations. So yes, it does matter who repairs your jewelry, and if you are in need of any type of jewelry repair, please stop by for a free consultation. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the pathfinder of the seas, Matthew Fontaine Maury. I have in the studio with me Mr. Russell Hooper, who has spent a significant amount of time collecting the papers of the Maury family. Just before our break, Russell, we were talking about Maury's injury, his uh, injury that would prevent him from going back to sea. He's still going to get the nickname Pathfinder of the Seas, so he's clearly not done with his naval career. Um, So he's broken his leg badly. He's considered unfit for sea duty. There was an attempt by the Navy to force Maury's retirement. Uh, He petitioned Congress for reinstatement but was placed behind a desk, uh, which, as it turned out, was one of the most momentous unintended consequences in American (laughs) history. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh Absolutely. as we mentioned during the, uh, the break, uh, the two accidents
2: that Mari suffered, the fall from the tree and the carriage accident in a strange way actually changed his life uh, in a positive way, uh, unintended consequences. When After the accident, um, he was deemed unfit to, to go to sea for an extended period of time. He eventually ended up uh, as being appointed the superintendent of the U.S. Uh, Naval uh, Observatory. And when he first took over, um, I think it was called the Depot of Charts, and he he noticed thousands of old logbooks piled into corners. And the Navy, to my understanding, was just planning on destroying those logbooks. But from his early days where he kept his own records as best as he could, he realized this is treasure. Uh, this is unmined information, and we need to go through these logbooks and figure out the patterns. Um, Mari was brilliant at pulling
1: order from chaos. It's amazing. So the Navy is sort of requiring officers to record the information, but they didn't have a means in place to take the information then and make it into something useful. Right. So Morris right. sees an opportunity. This is – as you said, this is unmined gold that he can really – do something with? Absolutely. He felt that there were patterns
2: uh, in wind and currents. When he was a young boy growing up, he was a very spiritual, religious man. And Psalm chapter 8, verse 8 always hit him, and that was the paths of the sea. And Maury felt, you know, if it's written in the Bible, uh, then it's there. It's just for us to find. Hmm. And so he went through all these thousands of charts, found patterns, you know, Certain days of the year, times of the year, and eventually he he through a, we don't have as much time as we would like to discuss all this, but he eventually around he developed a, a, a an abstract log for merchant captains, navy captains, and whatnot to fill out on their cruises. Hmm. Um, it had times of the day, what was the wind? Where was the wind blowing? What direction was it blowing at certain times of the month and whatnot. And at one point in in history, upwards of 70 to 75 percent of all merchant captains and Navy captains across the globe were carrying Mari's abstract logs, uh, which they would mark down where they were, what what was going on, which way the currents were going at a certain time. And they would send it back to Mari and his team at the Naval Observatory where they would compile these wind and current charts. And those wind and current charts absolutely changed the way the world viewed navigation you know they and used how to,
1: the world traveled on the sea absolutely they used to just dead reckon you just point at a star and go the closest uh, what's the what's the line uh, between between a point between two lines right. you know what right I'm all say. right and barry
2: proved that that was not always <laughs> true. not the
1: case at all right he, he changed it all it's fascinating because he broke his leg right and basically gets a demotion Half right. pay, I think, right? Than what he had before, right. and they put him behind a desk in the depot of charts and instruments. You know, they thought they're, you know, they're going to kind of punish this guy, right? He'll fade away. He'll, you know, he'll. But he's making lemonade out of lemons. I Absolutely, mean, he, he is doing incredible things. He published wind and current chart of the North Atlantic in, in 1847. What was the impact of that book upon the world's navies and and merchant marines? Oh, goodness. My favorite story to tell in that that vein
2: um, is the Flying Cloud, which was a famous clipper ship owned by the Grinnell family. And uh, the captain was Josiah Creasy and his wife, Eleanor Creasy, from Marblehead, Massachusetts, was the navigator. That was highly unusual at that time. (laughs) But Eleanor Creasy – she was fascinated by Matthew Mari and she followed all of his work. And so she convinced the owners of the Flying Cloud, um, "Let me use Mari's charts on our cruise from New York to San Francisco." And again, this is during the Gold Rush, so it's imperative. Time is money as it is today. And she said, "Let me use those Mari's charts because I think we can we can speed this process up." and the average it used to take from New York uh to San Francisco anchor to anchor
1: used to be around 130 days explain the route that the normal route that they that sailors were taking prior to this you have to you would have to go around the cape horn
2: and it was and it, it was very intense and very risky uh um, but it took about an average before maris charts of about 130 days the Gremlins decided they they would let Eleanor Creasy use this <laughs> sort of madman's charts, and it broke the record. It made it from New York to San Francisco in eighty nine days, and that record was not broken until the nineteen eighties. Really? Yes. And and but from that moment on, I mean, the merchants of New York and and everyone realized, goodness gracious, that's a that's a game changer. Yeah, this man, uh, there's something to his charts.
1: And we need to listen to what he has to say. And uh, um, I mean, the book becomes a, a, a hugely important for every reason that you just said. What did the publication mean to Maury's career? Did he get credit for the work that he was doing? Did, did it matter to him?
2: It did. In fact, his his young uh, nephew, Dabney Maury, uh, John Maury's son. Um, Who Commander Mari kind of raised as his own son, Hmm. Dabney told Commander Mari, "If you don't really write a book about this, somebody else is going to do it and get all the get all the credit." So Mari added that wind and current chart to a book called Physical Geography of the Sea, and that was, I believe, first published in 1854, and that became the first comprehensive textbook of the science of what we now call oceanography. And Baron Alexander von Humboldt actually told Mari, um, you are the father of this science. And I mean, how amazing is that? And and Humboldt awarded Mari the
1: Cosmos uh, Hmm. Award. Um, I I think when I asked you to be a guest on History Sook, I told you I have a copy of that book on my desk. (laughs) And I was shocked when you wrote back saying somebody else had a copy of that book on his desk as well. Yes. who, Who was that? Uh, Jules Verne. Jules Verne. Right. My friend John Grady, who was the former longtime
2: editor of the Navy Times, John published a comprehensive biography of Mari Commander Mari in 2015. John put that in his book that Vern, Jules Verne kept a copy of Physical Geography of the Sea on his desk while he wrote 20,000 uh, Leagues Under
1: the Sea. That's amazing. Right. That's inspirational. I will not be writing that novel. So, uh, he also partook in the study of whale migration. Absolutely. What was the importance of it? Well, it it that sort of started because he, he was fascinated by
2: the theory of a Northwest Passage, hmm. and they had found wells that had had harpoons in them that they would find in one part of the Arctic where they couldn't have gotten there unless there was a way for them to get through to that area. And so Mari thought there has to be a Northwest
1: passage in some way so for our listeners who aren't familiar our northwest passage would be a, a water connection between the atlantic the north atlantic and the pacific right probably right. along the arctic
2: right coast right and uh and Mar- Mari was fascinated with that because the well industry was massive at that time and he was uh, actually friends with uh, i believe his name was jeremiah reynolds uh who wrote a book about mocha dick who was a that was an actual well um and so Mari Mari's well charts transformed the well industry, as well. In fact, uh, Herman Melville, when he wrote Moby Dick, in his in his journal and in newer copies of Moby Dick, it it has uh, Herman Melville says these these well charts are directly from Matthew Mari that. It, the
1: inspiration for those whale charts. It's incredible. Again, using science and it's just changing – the whale industry is hugely important to the American economy in right. this time period. Right. So making those connections and conceiving of an idea that there is a Northwest Passage is – again, it's a, another game changer, another – just one other aspect of what he's right. studying that's that's going to have a huge impact on, on the American economy. Um, what kind of man was he? He He's starting to get credit now. He's publishing these volumes. People are starting to recognize him. He's being awarded for what he's doing. What do people think of him from a personal standpoint? Do we know that? Do we get a sense of that from his letters?
0: We do.
2: Uh, he He was a very complex man and – there's a line from a, a country song, uh, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. Mm. It always kind of reminds me of Mari. Uh, them that don't know him won't like him, and them that do sometimes won't know how to take him. Mm. Um, he, he, he was obviously a genius. Um, I often think about the line, I think Schopenhauer said it, that talent hits a target that no one else can hit, but genius hits a target no one else can see. Mm. And so Mari was able to see what others could not see. And so sometimes that created some jealousy uh, amongst the scientific community. He had a lot of people in the scientific community, especially in America, that felt he was not classically educated. He did not go to Harvard. He did not go to William & Mary. The only education he had was at Harpeth Academy in Franklin. So this group was called the Scientific Lazzaroni. And it was Joseph Henry of the Smithsonian, Alexander Dallas Bach of the Coast Survey, and um, William Peirce of Harvard. And their, one of their big supporters was Senator Jefferson Davis. Mm. But they felt that Mari was not classically educated and had no business running the U.S. Naval Observatory. So a large part of his career was sort of battling these guys behind the scenes who were always trying to discredit him. But again, he would always dislike his charts. They, they would prove out. And, uh,
1: there was always a huge amount of um, competition in, in the fields of science, but also just within the Navy itself. Absolutely. Uh, lots of officers, of course, are trying to get ahead and get those promotions. And uh, so I think he he's having to battle all of those things really throughout his entire career. Absolutely. What got you interested in the Moray family? Oh, gosh.
2: Uh, back around 2008 or 2009, I I met Mr. Robert Hicks. Who was the New York Times best-selling author of the historical fiction um, "Widow of the South," which was a story based around the Battle of Franklin and Carrie McGavick, who lived at Carton Plantation? But Robert and I were talking one day, and I was going through a life change. I was coming out of a divorce and was looking to something to get my mind on something positive. And he said, "You need to read Shelby Foote's Civil War narrative, the three thousand-page epic." Mm. And on a few of those pages, Mister Foote described the adventures of the CSS Alabama, which was this British-built Confederate merchant raider that, during the Civil War, was the most famous ship in the world, led by this enigmatic Captain Raphael Sims. Um, so I was hooked on that, and I read everything I could about the Alabama and Sims. And in Sims' memoirs, post-war memoirs, he kept talking about his friend Mari from Tennessee, hmm. this great scientist, and. Uh, uh, friend of his. And that's how that led me to Maury, because I found out he grew up in Franklin, and I had, I had no idea. I lived here m- my whole life, and I knew a little bit about Abram and, of course, Murray County, but I never knew anything about Matthew Maury.
1: How did that interest in Maury translate into collecting his papers? Well, uh,
2: Robert and I had a friend, uh, uh, Mike
1: Cotter, who ran uh, a
2: rare book and manuscript store in Leaper's Fork called Yeomans in the Fork. And we would spend hours there and just surrounded by old books and old letters, and you love it, you know you're the same same way um but one day Mike said, "Hey, I found this um one letter by Matthew Mari. Are you interested?" I said, "Sure, absolutely. I'd love to have a piece of that you know uh, of that of of the man, you know, and so that's how I got hooked on Mari letters, and of course, eventually it it's the collection has grown. How large is your collection? Oh gosh." Uh, uh, mari letters himself. I have probably, any, probably around 120 to 130 or 40 actual Commander Mari letters. But the entire collection is over a thousand letters. The Fontaine mari family uh, journals I have several
1: Civil War journals. Um, so you're not a Moray family member what is the Maury family? Are you connected with, you said you you know a few of them. How do they feel about you collecting the family papers?
2: We have a great relationship, and of course I have my Fontaine Maury Society shirt on. Uh, They have a a society, and uh, you don't have to be a a member of the family to join the Fontaine Maury Society, but uh, they're very pleased. A lot of these papers have gone up for auction, and um, I just decided I wanted to gather them all together in a safe place, and uh, Go through, and I was the first one to go through most of these hmm. letters, other than the people who wrote them. Right, I've been.
1: Uh, in, it's the first time they're coming back together in a collection where you can view them as right. a, as they, a whole. There's so much to be learned from that. Right, they've never
2: been published or anything. So
1: amazing. What what's your favorite? What's your favorite item in your collection?
2: Oh gosh,
1: uh, there are
2: there are several. Uh, one letter that's that's not directly related to Matthew Mari was a letter I was going through. Um, and it ended up being Consul Murray, James Murray's final visit with J- uh, James Madison, uh, I believe it was in 1835. And mm. as I was transcribing that letter, I started to realize, oh, my goodness, they're at Montpelier with James and uh, Dolly Madison. And so I called Montpelier that afternoon, and and boy, they called back within five minutes. I bet they did. So they, they said, I, I, we know exactly w- – the period you're talking about, we have letters written before the visit and after the visit, but we have no letters written during the visit. Wow.
1: And uh, so that's a fun – that's a fun letter. Do you have any three-dimensional objects in your collection? There are more objects that have come up for sale or, or are – I know we're in um, some public collections and some private collections as well. Do you have any three-dimensional objects? Uh, a while back, I acquired uh, Captain Lewis Maury's uh, CSS Georgia
2: letter book, mm-hmm. and the CSS Georgia was uh, – Built in Scotland uh, for the Confederacy, and it started out as a merchant ship called the Japan. But Commander Maury uh, acquired the Georgia for the Confederacy, and he put his uh, cousin Lewis in command. And I have Lewis's letter book, uh, but it, uh, it it came with one of his spyglasses really, and uh, and a pair of his field binoculars. So
1: that's the only really uh, three dimensional object that well, I those are good ones. Uh it's pretty I, neat. I, I I'm I've always been fascinated with maritime history and, and naval history. Uh, there's something about especially I think about naval artifacts. Mm-hmm. Because of the adventure, and you, you think of these these grand ships in the nineteenth century, and how they were used, and how important these items, these objects were right. for the safety of every man on, and, and a woman, apparently on on, uh, a, right. on the ship, uh, they they really hook me. Uh, I, I love them. That, right. That's amazing. Morey was an innovator. He was really one of the first, and certainly. The most successful of the scientific naval officers, his work allowed him to not just publish his findings for the benefit of others, but allowed him to advocate for the true study of ocean, uh, I'm sorry, oceanography by young sailors. He had a steady flow of young officers who he trained and eventually became a strong supporter himself of a naval academy. I find it interesting that some of the most important discoveries and ideas came about during the tenure of James K. Polk, uh, 1845 to 1849. Polk lived, of course, just 30 miles away uh, from uh, Maury uh, in Murray County. Uh, <laughs> did they know each other? They did. They did. Uh,
2: I actually have a letter. I, I don't know the exact year, but it's a it's a rather short letter, and part of it deals with the recent discovery of Neptune, planet Neptune. But Mari also says he he says I'm getting ready to head to UNC Chapel Hill uh, with President Polk, and uh, I believe, and you you may know more about what happened at Chapel Hill, but I believe it was Mari's first uh, honorary degree, uh, and but he went with President Polk, and he writes about it in the the letter. So yes, they knew each other,
1: and uh, and. Uh, so the Naval Academy comes about during Polk's presidency. Do you know – did they collaborate at all on the idea of creating this academy? How, how involved I guess is my question. How involved was Maury with the start of the United States Naval Academy? Extremely involved.
2: Uh, after his accident, uh,
1: the carriage accident,
2: uh, he began to write a series of letters uh, under a pen name, Harry Bluff. And they were published in the Southern Literary Messenger. And in those letters, he pleaded for the creation of a Naval Academy. Uh, so that young Navy officers could have the opportunity uh, that, that Army officers had of at, at West Point. Of course, the summer, USS Summers incident happened, which also led to it. But there are people in the Navy and h- Navy historians who say that as an individual, no one had more influence on the creation of the academy than, than Matthew Martin. He
1: felt it firsthand. I mean, he was an exceptional student. He took it upon himself to learn he the mysteries of, of naval travel, sea travel. Right. But for the average— a young officer, midshipman going aboard ship, having to learn there weren't a great deal of opportunity. So by creating an institution, it's going to have a huge impact on the American Navy moving forward. Now, Absolutely. it's during the same time that the that uh, the Naval Academy is getting started during Polk's presidency that the US-Mexican War is fought right. as well, which one of the great outcomes of that war is where we see the effects of West Point on the battlefield really for the first time, right? that these young officers, these mid-grade officers, these lieutenants and captains and majors and a few colonels even were, were graduates of West Point, and right. boy, did it have an impact on the battlefields in Mexico. So I think they're seeing the practicality of military education uh, and the Naval Academy is is born out of that.
2: Right. I actually have a letter where Mari writes, and, and he writes a cousin and says, uh, a Navy officer literally just wrote by hand an outline of the coast. I believe it was a Veracruz. And he was like, can you believe that, how just <laughs> inept that is, that we don't have a map uh, right. of the coastline. And so, yes, the Naval Academy changed that.
1: Unbelievable. And and so much of the influence comes right from right here in Middle Tennessee. Right. We need to take our second break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about the amazing life and career of Matthew Fontaine Morton. You're listening to History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hey, folks, this is Chandler Anderson from the Right Care Walk-In Clinics. Hey, guys, we're open 11 to 11, seven days a week, so that you don't have to go wait at the emergency room when you have an urgent care need. Our providers are all emergency medicine experienced or critical care experienced, and we're there to take care of you so that you're not caught at the emergency department for hours and hours on end. Folks, seven days a week, right in front of Walmart, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., we stay late so you don't have to wait at the ER History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price. Today we're talking about uh, a very interesting Middle Tennessee story that uh, grows and expands and wraps around the globe numerous times. We're talking about Matthew Fontaine Maury. I have in the studio with me today Mr. Russell Hooper, who is one of the foremost authorities on Maury's incredible career and a collector of Maury's Family Papers. Russell, Maury remained on the cutting edge of technology. He embraced technology, I think, throughout his career. He developed relationships with people like Cyrus Field and Samuel Morse. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes,
2: uh, especially Cyrus Field um, and the transatlantic cable, the first transatlantic cable. Um, Cyrus Field um, actually reached out directly to Matthew uh about the feasibility of laying a transatlantic cable. To connect uh, Europe with America. And uh, Mari told him, well, just by chance, you won't believe this, but Mari actually published the first bathymetric chart in history, which is a depth, deep sea depth chart. And he told Cyrus Field, we've just received these results back from uh, deep sea soundings, and there appears to be what he called a telegraph plateau running from Newf- newfoundland i know it's pronounced so there are people are funny about how it's pronounced but newfoundland uh, to to the u.s and he said it's it's as if it was laid out specifically for such a cable so he told cyrus field absolutely i fully believe you can do it and i'll help you set it up and so they did and um after it was uh, it was laid and and the first transmission was was successfully transmitted cyrus field gave a Uh, During a speech uh, in New York City, he toasted and he actually said Mari Mari was the brains uh, for this operation. And uh, so, yeah, Mari, I mean, just think of that. It's the the first internet, you know. Right. And Mari was right there behind it and, and his deep sea soundings, his bathymetric charts actually helped Cyrus Field convince him to do it.
1: Through the 1850s, as the country struggled with the expansionism of Polk's administration and the concurrent issues related to slavery, where slavery really becomes a, a, a political issue, what was Maury's stance on slavery? Was he a slaveholder?
2: It—I
1: tell you what. There, in
2: the in the past, there have been historians that said he was not. Like Amanda Foreman in her book *World on Fire*, which is about Great Britain's role in the Civil mm-hmm. War, she said she did not believe Maury owned any slaves. Um, I've got a good friend of mine, J.C. Holman, that's about to publish a new book uh, that Mari figures into this book, and he, he he's discovered that he thinks he did um, have have a, own a, own a slave. Um, I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I think he probably did uh, at his home in Fre- Fredericksburg, but Mari had some ideas in the early 1850s um, involving Brazil, and he called Brazil a safety valve. And his thoughts on that were, as I understand it, on two fronts. He wanted to funnel U.S. slaves out of the country and into Brazil, which would lessen slavery in the United States. And in so doing, it would also decrease Brazil's reliance upon the active slave trade with Africa, which Brazil was very much involved with. And I don't think Brazil abolished slavery till the 1880s. But Mari wrote extensively about that, and he had a cousin, Mary Blackford, who was an abolitionist, a very vocal abolitionist. Mm. And so she would write him and say, I've heard about your Brazil plan, and I think you're talking about expanding slavery. And he would write her back, and he would say, no, you're misunderstanding what I'm what I'm talking about. I'm trying to do the best I can with with what I'm working with here, and I'm trying to – Relieve he, us of this. He sees it as a, a means of diffusing the issue in the United States, right? And 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 I, I want to go back and look at the Webster Ashburton Treaty. Uh, uh, Mari and Webster were, were close. Uh, uh, Mari actually set up an expedition to the Amazon, and his cousin William Herndon uh, led it, and and Daniel Webster was a supporter of that mission. Um, but I think Maury was very conflicted by it. Um, as he told his cousin, Mary Blackford, you know, I, I, I dream of a day when I can wake up in Virginia and there's no slavery, um, you know, and uh, – but he was uh, caught caught in that sure. difficult spot.
1: When secession finally came, where did Maury align himself? Uh,
2: he, he, he made it pretty clear that he was going to do uh, whatever Virginia or Tennessee were going to do and uh, – there was no doubt about that. He was very loyal, and and he would he would not raise his sword against either the state of his birth, Virginia, or the state where he was raised. So he
1: resigned his commission in the United States Navy after all of this time.
2: Yes, on April twentieth, the same day as Robert E. Lee, um, they were very close friends. Um, at three o'clock, that's when he would leave the observatory every day. He uh, sat down to write his resignation letter to President Lincoln, and his his top assistant pleaded with him, "Please don't do this. Really, don't do it." And uh, his Mari had terrible handwriting uh so he he finally said that his assistant said I can't I can't write this letter and so Mari said give me the give me wow. the pen I'll I'll do it
1: and um amazing what was his role did he ha- did he take on a role with the confederacy then he did at first he was chief
2: of seacoast and harbor defenses and he was charged with uh protecting our coast and and harbors, and he developed the first uh, electric uh, torpedo, which we now call mines. And after the war, Gideon Wells said Mari's torpedoes uh, were a, a massive influence on the – Which on, he developed in his bathtub. He did. <laughs> he did with his cousin's house in Richmond, and that, that, his cousin threw him out pretty quickly. Uh, but he eventually ended up in Europe with what's called the Confederate Secret Service in Europe, and he was a chief agent over there. Uh, he was sent over there to try and um, – uh, get france and and England uh, to officially recognize the Confederacy, which of course never happened, and also to procure uh, ships um, the Georgia and uh, teddy roosevelt 's uncle uh, James Bullock was another chief agent he was headquartered in Liverpool he acquired the the css alabama
1: that's a whole another. could spend an hour just on that oh, just the intrigue going on in this time frame is is really pretty amazing It was a global uh, in some ways a a, a global
2: War. I mean, you had France and England uh, both under the table,
1: kind of hoping that America would would split. I think um, you mentioned uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was kind of intrigued by the intrigue.
2: Yes, my friend Renata Ely Long. She's a she's a British historian. She wrote a book in the Shadow of the Alabama. Um, Mari's in the book some, um, but it 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 discusses that spy game that went on during the American Civil War over there, and when. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a, was a little boy growing up. He would hear stories of those spy games and that sort of led to
1: uh, Amazing. Sherlock Holmes. I love the connections, especially the <laughs> literary connections. It's right. just fascinating. What did he do following the war? Uh, he was not uh, – because
2: he had served as a foreign agent, uh, he was not initially um, um, uh, pardoned. So he spent a brief amount of time in Mexico is uh, Imperial Commissioner of Colonization of the Second Mexican Empire. Mm. Um, And and there's some controversy over that too. I want to really investigate that. Uh, Mari thought ex Confederates could settle in Mexico. Um, Some people say that he was wanting to expand slavery. I I do not believe slavery was permitted under the the French Empire, which was involved with it. Um, So I don't think that was Mari's plan. I think he thought the freedmen and freedwomen could come down there and – … and settled there with their former owners. But after that, he ended up uh, at the Virginia Military Institute. He was finally pardoned, and he spent his final years at VMI. um, Teaching? um, Teaching. Well, uh, not so much teaching as he was speaking about the need for what eventually became a National Weather Bureau. Mm. And that's how he spent it. And he was invited to speak in Boston. One of the, his last speeches, which I know that meant a lot to him because there was a lot of anger towards him. And uh, to be invited up to Boston to speak
1: was – I know that meant a lot to him. He died in 1873. He was buried in Richmond between Presidents Monroe and Tyler. Absolutely. A kind of a place of honor I would think. What is Matthew Fontaine Morey's greatest legacy? I think all he did for science, uh,
2: oceanography. Um, he he had a vision that every uh, Navy ship could become its own floating observatory. Uh, he felt that science was not restricted just to those who had been classically trained. He felt that everyday people could could contribute to science and uh, Dr. Karen Cooper at North Carolina State published a book recently called Citizen Science and she talks about Mari in that book and how important he was in involving just average citizens in, in science and
1: we need that now, today, more than, more than ever. An average person with an inquisitive mind can do amazing can things. Can help out, yes. Russell Hooper, thank you so much for spending an hour with us on History's Hook. I end the show with a quote from Commander Matthew fontaine Morey. Every physical fact, every expression of nature, every feature of the earth, the work of any and all of those agents which make the face of the world what it is and as we see it is interesting and instructive. Until we get hold of a group of physical facts, we do not know what practical bearings they may have. The right-minded men know that they contain many precious jewels which science, or the expert hand of philosophy, will not fail to bring out, polished and bright and beautifully adapted to man's purposes. Thank you to our listeners. You can now hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at frontporchradiotn.com, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us again next week, won't you, as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for A Journey Through Time.